Hi, everyone. I'm Shampa Chowdhury, and I'm a current second-year MBA candidate at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and you're listening to the Wharton FinTech Club podcast. On this podcast, we're talking about the complicated but fast-evolving fintech space in India. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Alok Mittal, the founder and CEO of Indify, a leading online lending platform for businesses. Businesses often lack access to timely credit when they need to grow. Indify solves the problem by bringing multiple partners and lenders to bridge this credit gap through their technology platform. Alok is a serial entrepreneur, having founded Jobs Ahead and Fluxia University prior to this enterprise. He was also the founding board member of the Angel, uh, Indian Angel Network. Alok studied computer science engineering in the Indian Institute of Technology in Delhi and also received his master's in computer science from UC Berkeley. Welcome, Alok. We're really, really excited to have you here today. Thank you, Shampa. Excited to be on the call. Awesome. So I gave a little teaser into your very illustrious background across different entrepreneurial ventures and investing experiences, but would love to hear about it from yourself. Could you tell us a little bit about the journey that brought you today to this enterprise? Sure. You know, so as you mentioned, I studied my engineering from IIT Delhi. And uh, interestingly, you know, uh, during my internship there, I discovered that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So that was a set goal in my mind. You know, I went to Berkeley for my master's, but I wanted to come back and, you know, do a startup in India. So I came back from Berkeley in 95, worked in a company for about three or four years, and then got into my first startup, which was Jobs Ahead. You know, we built that business. We sold it to Monster, which was the global leader in online recruitment at that time. And then right. accidentally, uh, you know, I landed up uh, in the venture capital industry. So I set up and ran Cable Partners India Operations for about 10 years, investing in entrepreneurs. By 2014, I was feeling like I wanted to get back and do a startup, you know, get my hands dirty again. And one of the businesses that we had invested in Cable Partners in the U.S. was Lending Club, which was a platform for, peer platform Ah. for consumer lending. So, you know, with that as a starting point, we started to question as to what kind of a lending platform may work in the Indian environment. So one, uh, you know, my conviction was much more in small business lending because I thought that there is far greater data complexity there and hence the ability to do, to innovate on the credit underwriting and build modes around the business. But the other thing which was very right. interesting about the Indian market, you know, especially in contrast to the U.S. market, was that banks uh, were willing to partner with fintech players fairly early in the day. If you remember the U.S. market, initially banks ignored the fintech industry. And it was only after six to seven years that banks started to participate in that movement. The Indian banks were far more hungry from day one. And they were looking to partner with fintech platforms. So we uh, envisaged ourselves as a small business lending platform powered by banks and NBFCs, non-banking financial services providers, rather than powered by individual capital. I think that's extremely interesting. And you said a lot there that I want to unpack as well. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, so you know, once we had kind of figured out that we wanted to do this small business you know, institutional platform, really the other question for us was to 
answer why small businesses are under sought for credit. Right, that root cause analysis was important for me coming outside of the lending industry. And we really, you know, spent six, seven months on the on the road trying to figure that one out. I met my co-founder Siddharth, who comes from the credit background during that period. And the root cause that we uh, identified is because, you know, banks have conventionally served small businesses in a one-size-fits-all manner. Right, so it's the same product that goes out to 95% of the small businesses in India. This is a long tenure right. term loan, you know, three years to to seven years, regardless of what their business right. is. And yeah. all the small businesses get assessed as per the same credit scorecards, which are based around their financial parameters, their uh, tax returns. So that right. seemed quite unintuitive, you know, coming from outside, where we could see that different small businesses have different product needs, but more importantly, different industries carry different risk elements. So we structured ourselves in specific industry verticals where we could design the products cases in that industry vertical, and at the same time be able to calibrate risk uh, specific to those industries. And that is really the big innovation that is driving NDP today. Absolutely, the kind of customized risk assessments as well as serving the customers with a more tailored product to their needs. That that absolutely That's makes right. sense. Awesome. Th- thanks for that background. I, I do want to dive into some different things you said in your background that, that stood out to me. First is, if we talk about this question of you said you accidentally fell into you know the venture capital world, of course, a lot of people, when they're thinking about, you know, they're interested in entrepreneurship, they think traditionally about two paths. Either they get involved in an entrepreneurial venture or they go down the investing route. You've had extensive experiences in both. So would love to hear your thoughts about how those experiences compared and kind of some of the drivers as to why you felt the need even after being in investing for a while to come back and, you know, you said you want to get your hands dirty. So come back into the hustle of entrepreneurship. Uh, Absolutely. So, uh, you know, one of the things that brought me into the investment industry to start with, and remember this is 2005, there wasn't a venture capital industry in India to talk about. Right. So when I came out of Jobs Ahead, one of the things that I landed up doing is to co-found the Indian Angel Network. And part of it was in response to the fact that there weren't VCs around at that time. So we said, why don't we set up an angel Mm. group so that we can at least start to Mm -hmm. put some seed money together for entrepreneurs. Now, given uh, that stage of maturity of the market, you know, my venture Mm -hmm. capital career very much looked like a startup career. It was not, you know, starting another firm, Mm. populated market. Canon really was one of the first few venture capital firms, you know, along with a dozen odd other players, really trying to, you know, build the venture ecosystem from scratch. Uh, So that was the exciting part about my venture business. The other piece that I really enjoyed there was this whole notion of being able to partner with extremely energetic entrepreneurs and get a bird's mm-hmm. eye view of the whole industry and innovation happening across several areas. So, so those were the right. exciting elements of you know, being a VC in India during that period. 2014, I was 42 years old. You know, I still saw right. 20, 30 years ahead of me. And I thought that was a good time yeah. for me to take another shot at doing an operating startup. And one can always come back to investing you know, later in the career. But I think one of the things that prompted me to get back to venture was actually the fact that I went into venture capital industry fairly early in my career. 
And right, I didn't right. have to think about entering and retiring from venture industry. You know, I actually had the time to come back to entrepreneurship and still have an option of investing later in my career. Right. I think I think that's a really, you know, helpful and candid view into the fact that that optionality exists for VC, whereas, you know, starting a full-on entrepreneurial venture much, much later in your life is, is probably a little bit harder. And so Just that's a very helpful perspective for us. To Absolutely. The other thing I wanted to catch on, and this is something, you know, I love that you mentioned it because it is something uh, that is a peculiarity whenever we look at the Indian fintech space, which is this element of collaboration versus the eye of competition between fintech, between NBFCs, between incumbents. It's it's really a very interconnected ecosystem with people looking to partner, looking to collaborate in many different ways. So I w- I'd love to hear you elaborate on that a little bit more, elaborate on you know your experiences with what makes that helpful, what makes that challenging in some senses. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, first it's important to understand uh, what is the underlying cause for this collaborative behavior, right? Right. If right. I look at the small business credit uh, space, you know, there are about 60 right. million small businesses in India. And less than 10 million of those yeah. are served through any form of formal credit. Right. So very often, and you know, this is true of the fintech space, but I also this being true of many other venture categories that I that I explored earlier, which is that right. in the US, while there are many markets that are well served, and hence startups mm-hmm. are really trying to disrupt the incumbents. In India, right. you know, many markets are so underserved that both startups mm-hmm. and incumbents are looking to really fill the white spaces. Rather than exactly the right. right, and what that leads to is a far more collaborative collaborative behavior uh, rather than competitive behavior, even in terms of yeah. how startups articulate their ambition. Right. So in US, a lending startup may articulate its ambition as disrupting the status quo, bringing more frictionless services to customers, disrupting the price points, and right. you know getting rid of the obnoxious fees that are charged by the banks, right? So you will see that right, being the right. articulation of many of the startups. Whereas in India, it's always been yeah. about these massive, big white spaces that exist and the ability to serve those yeah. white spaces. Now, guess what? Incumbents also want to serve those white spaces and hence are willing yeah. to partner with startups when the vision is to you know fill those white spaces rather than challenge an incumbent. The second right. factor which has worked towards this collaboration is, you right. know, there is a narrative, and I think it is only a narrative, that in U.S. banks have been lazy, you know, they don't have the skill sets. I don't believe any of that. In India especially, we've seen that banks are extremely proactive, right? They are hungry, and they have the skill sets. Right. The smartest people right. go join banks. Right. And hence, I think they are forward-looking in terms of partnering rather than being defensive, about their place and their position in the industry. So I think that right, attitude very and uh, that intellectual yeah. capacity paved the way for partnering right. rather than competing. Right. I think that's a very interesting point because you definitely see, you know, where you said fintechs being disruptors to incumbents in the U.S. landscape. In India, you see almost fintechs being enablers for incumbents to be able to access a part of the market that they previously were not able to touch. So in that way, 
Yeah, you know, bank DNA, almost looks DNA over. is not necessarily coming in the last five, seven years. You know, the DNA has been around for at least as long as I can remember. The, the previous big revolution in financial services in India was the microfinance revolution. And that was all built by partnerships between microfinance players and banks. So banks have been used to partnering with innovators for literally decades now. In right. fact, the whole MBSC sector is seen as an innovation where banks have partnered with non-banking companies. Right, absolutely. I think that's an interesting take where, you know, fintech and innovation is happening more recently, but there's been huge innovations in the space, especially in India through, you know, as long as we can remember. So they're kind of used to that. Even incumbents and people who work there know to expect that and have, have come to incorporate that into the way they work and things. That's very helpful. I mean, switching gears from the market a little bit to Indifi and what you guys are doing there, I'd love to hear a little bit about, obviously, understand why you've chosen the lending space, but a little bit more, the lending space is vast and, you know, you spoke about why you're serving small businesses, but even for small businesses, there's, you know, that's a catch-all category in India, as you know, with companies that range from, you know, very small shops around the road to much larger companies that could be almost like a formal large enterprise in a few years. And so how did you go about selecting what your segment is, what kind of loans? I know nowadays you do basically smaller ticket size. My understanding is unsecured loans and, and some other term business loans. How did you go about selecting what was the right customer base? What was the right kind of, you know, size of uh, product that you want to serve them with? Yeah. So, you know, our starting standpoint, as I mentioned, was really saying, you know, can we use the technology and data that is becoming available to serve massively underserved customers, right? We did not want to go into the same space that banks already operate in and be a challenger. We wanted to target white spaces and build a business there. So, in fact, our first criteria for choosing a segment is, is that segment massively underserved, right? So, the first right. industry vertical we chose, travel agencies, is very often on the blacklist for most banks. So, we said that's a great right. segment to start with. If it's on the blacklist, means there is a problem to be solved, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing, obviously, then, is to understand why is that segment underserved. There's typically a very good reason. It's not because <laughs> banks are lazy or banks are stupid, right? It is because they are seeing right. the risk uh, in that. So being able to understand that right. and having a hypothesis why we are going to be able to solve that is an important part of the construct. So in travel right. agencies, for example, you know, banks are very worried about the volatility in that business. And the fact that they cannot dimension the overall turnover of a travel agency because the, only the commission flows mm -hmm. to the balance mm -hmm. sheet, not the ticketing right. volume. So we said this right. is a perfect case. Let's go to suppliers of ticketing, which are airlines and so on. And let us get the data from mm -hmm. them regarding what is the volatility, what is the actual ticketing volume for these travel agencies. So we struck those partnerships. Yeah. We got that data mm -hmm. into the fold. We started to use that data to answer that core risk question that banks were throwing at us. Right? The third right. key, uh, selection parameter for us is, you know, we see ourselves largely as a technology and data-enabled player, not as someone who will put a lot of salespeople on the ground or credit people on the ground. So we want to make right. sure we are choosing customers. There is a certain uh, degree of online serviceability. They should mm. be using net banking. They should feel comfortable using a mobile phone, right? So, right, so right. that's the third important factor, which is totally driven by our delivery model, 
and the potential for customers to adopt that delivery model rather than expect a lot right. of uh, high touch service so those are really the key parameters for the kind of segments that we choose given that there right. is a, a considerable risk in serving these segments normally we run yeah. about a 12 month pilot in any of these segments to prove out mm-hmm. our hypothesis right of right. saying you know we have a certain hypothesis around how to solve for credit but does that work or mm-hmm. not right we have a certain hypothesis around what kind of partnerships can we strike in this segment does that work or not right right and ultimately right. does all of this translate into better credit performance so yes. normally in any given segment uh, there is a 12 month pilot that we do before we can answer those questions you know in a more definitive sense and it is after that that we take those segments to our banking and non banking partners to say here's the evidence that you know we can solve for this segment and would you now like to come on board Absolutely. and start lending to these businesses so that is the typical template of what we do in our business got it that's a that's a very helpful framework to think through because of course i'm sure the banking partners there would have a lot of questions around you know how do you control the risk there how are you actually solving the problem and and you know not just conceptually but the proven nature of being able to control the risk with with new data so that that absolutely makes sense the great part about this model is all of our intelligence of what can go wrong mm-hmm. comes from our banking partners right and that that intelligence comes on day one so this marketplace model mm-hmm. you know at some level is a you know is a is a business value chain we are defining it has its economic elements to it and so on but one of the things right. that we did not anticipate early on which is very helpful because of this market model is that in some sense we are mm-hmm. really crowdsourcing all the intelligence and building that into mm-hmm. a platform so our our right. partners know on day one what can go wrong with this segment and they are happy to share that with us because they see us as someone who's partnering to solve for those issues yes absolutely that's that's a very interesting way to look at it the fact that you're getting value because the goal is common your partner is essentially giving you knowledge they already have at at a very low cost for you uh, and you're able to leverage that to to create a solution for them You know, speaking about you mentioned that you know you one of the things you do is is get target customers that have some level of online friendliness or they have some sort of presence where they can interact with you in the digital realm because you don't want to be that company that's sending hordes of sales people from door to door uh speaking to small medium businesses. That I do want to touch on that a little bit though because when it comes to customer acquisition costs and the challenge of, you know, scaling lending businesses in india particularly those that are targeting uh small medium businesses you know rising customer acquisition costs and difficulty of acquiring these customers and keeping them over time is something that's always talked about so ob- obviously you know yeah. the way you're targeting customers is one way you're probably tackling this but i would love to hear your thoughts on how you've tackled this through time and how this is something you think about yeah so you know that uh it would bring me to the second key premise of our business the second so the first key premise that i mentioned you know was really around verticalizing the lending business right the second right. key premise of our business is that lending should now not stand disjointed from the business of your customers right so the only kind of lending right. that should exist is supply chain lending okay so now if you if you roll back 500 years when banking wasn't such a big business uh, lending would happen through supply chains right if i was buying something from someone they right. would not naturally extend credit to me for purchase of those goods yes. 
Now, when we created the banking system, we created it because capital flows became more efficient, right? But in the right. process, we landed up creating this thing called information asymmetry. So every lender will tell you today mm-hmm. that there is information asymmetry, that the borrower understands their business better than the banks do. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly enough, that understanding of the business is still present in supply chains. Mm-hmm. Right? So we think that lending needs to be inserted back into supply chains. A borrower should have never had to come to me as a bank or a walk into mm. a branch to get a loan. Right? Loans should be available to them through their business ecosystem, which is where all the information Interesting. is Right. Now, so that is the go-to market that we have adopted. So we have more than 30-odd partnerships with ecosystem players, mm. right? Think about the largest online travel right. agency in India. Think about the largest food delivery platform in India. Think about the largest e-commerce company in India. Right. Right. So we have partnerships with all of those. And when we partner right. with them, they are able to give us this differential data that I talked about, right? Transaction volume, volatility, what are customers saying about this business? And all of that data right. helps us underwrite the small business. But it also helps us originate small businesses at a cost-efficient basis. So our marketing mm-hmm. campaigns actually run in that supply chain, in that ecosystem. Right. And hence, small businesses can access our services right from within their business ecosystems. That is what makes customer acquisition cheaper for us. Got it. Right? Got the it. Customer so acquisition costs more when you to create another new channel. Yeah, go ahead. Right. No, I would say I, I was just rephrasing to understand. So what you're saying is you're kind of using the supply chain that your customers already utilize and inserting lending as a layer as part of that supply chain and the banks being something, banks and NBFCs being something that enable the lending to happen from the background, but it isn't kind of an additional channel that your customer has to go approach a financial services institution through something else or through another channel to go make the lending happen. Exactly. So that, that's a more efficient way of doing it. So as an example, you know, half of our data that we use for underwriting, actually more than half, maybe 75% of our data that we use for underwriting, we don't have to collect right. it directly from the borrower which brings down the cost in that relationship and onboarding, right? 75% of our data comes through various integrations we have done with all our partners. Of course, with customer consent, right? but it does not have the overhead right, of right. the customer explicitly submitting it. Yeah. Right. So you're not kind of starting from scratch and, and doing everything um, on your own. Does this high level of kind of collaboration and integration with folks relinquish some of the control that you have over underwriting the risk? Because one of the things that some incumbents argue is, you know, wanting to have this huge control over processing, you know, who, who the, basic, the credit decisioning process. And the fact that you have so many players intertwined in the system, a lot of the data is integrated from other players as well. Do you think that as your you know, offerings get more complex, as you scale to become bigger, that poses somewhat of a risk to underwriting? Or do you actually think it's more helpful? Yeah, so, so I think the, the fundamental question you are asking really is why hasn't this been done before, right? And the point you are making right. is very valid, that if you start to operate all of these different pathways uh, to a loan, right? Different partners, different data streams, different underwriting criteria, right? right? The complexity starts to balloon up fairly quickly, where over right. time then you want to move towards standardizing and then losing the power of this data, right? And that is indeed right, the case. Exactly. Right, that is indeed the case. So, you know, verticalized lending has not been invented by us. 
right? There are companies in India who've done verticalized lending. Uh, you know, Shiram Transport right. Finance is the largest asset financer, the verticalized lender. But because of the complexity Absolutely. that you referred to, they have never been able to scale beyond one vertical. Right. Now, right. what we have done is that, you know, the, our use of technology and data analytics is, is helping us here. Because we have been able to, so hmm. far, hide all of this complexity of multiple pathways in our platform. So our people don't have to deal with this complexity, but the system can deal with that complexity. So my salespeople, my telesales people who assist the customers through these journeys, don't really have to know what is going on behind the scene, which credit algorithm is required, what data streams will get pulled up. That is all managed right. by the platform itself. Similarly, when right. my credit underwriters are looking at these applications, at that stage, obviously, all right. the data has been pulled up, the right scorecard has been fired autom automatically, and that scorecard assists my underwriters in saying, these are the three questions that I'm worried about. Please focus on these questions and not on everything else under the universe. Right? So the, the platform is extremely critical to executing on the model that we do, and that hides the complexity from people, and hence makes the platform more scalable. Got it. I think, I think that's awesome. You put it really well because essentially the platform handling the, the complexity and what the humans get is a modularized version of what is relevant to them. And so for them, they're not really interfacing with that complexity day to day. So I, think, I think that's a really interesting way to tackle this question of you know, whether complexity and scalability are uh, uh, counterintuitive. So, you know, switching, uh, switching gears a little bit to the economics and revenue model, it is something you mentioned, especially in the context of marketplaces, and it's something that's debated a lot around whether, uh, um, you know, marketplaces offer a lot of lucrative value to all the participants, but it's debated sometimes as to whether the revenue models and the unit economics make sense as the business is scaling, especially yeah. in a market like India. So would love to hear your thoughts on that and how you tackle that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we are unit profitable on our marketplace today, right? Now, I think the interesting question is, uh, you know, why are we unit profitable? So one of the early choices we made is that we are not going to be a purely a lead referral marketplace, right? Because of two reasons. You know, one that has less economics associated with it. But more importantly, mm -hmm. if you're purely a referral marketplace, the loan performance data never comes back to you. Right. right. Because you've originated a loan, but you don't know what happened after that. Now, right. if the loan performance data doesn't come back to us, then we can't refine our lending algorithms. Absolutely. So we took an early decision to full stack marketplace. So today we create the product, we originate the customer, we onboard the customer to the lender, mm -hmm. but we also do customer service. Right. We also do monitor that its life cycle. We upsell that customer. And if the loan starts to go bad, we collect that customer, right? So we are providing a full life cycle so service you, to our lenders. Got it. So you really own that customer. And, and in your experience, when the customer is kind of coming back, you're saying you upsell. You also handle kind of post, yeah. uh, post the loan life cycle, bringing them back. Because that is a complaint that a lot of folks have where a marketplace kind of transaction seems very one-time and very transactional, where... Um, they don't feel like they own the, the customer relationship. And it seems like you guys are doing that differently. Do you find that your customers tend to then think of you when they're thinking of, oh, I need my next loan or I need to explore something right. else? They're thinking of you versus the banking partner that they were working with? 
Yes, that's right. And so, you know, now we have had an opportunity over the last four years to, you know, test this with 15,000 customers, right? And we haven't seen cases where those customers would like to walk back into the bank, bank branch, right? Hmm. Now, with that construct, the other key decision that we took is we are substituting the operating cost of the lender, right? When we handle the full life cycle operations, we are taking away cost right. from the uh, lender. And we said our revenue yeah. should be just operating cost substitution and not a premium on that, right? Now, the reason mm. that is important is because if I charge anything more than operating cost substitution, then loans on my platform mm -hmm. will be more expensive than loans directly from the lender. Right. Right, because somewhere that, that premium will get priced in. And we didn't want that to right. happen. So we said we will charge operating cost substitution so that the lender has no incentive to bypass us. And the borrower gets the same right. deal on my platform that they would get if they went directly to the lender. So that has worked really right. well for us. So all of our profit margin is made from operating cost efficiencies that technology delivers and mm -hmm. not from a premium that we may charge for bringing the intelligence to the, to the table. Right. No, absolutely. I was just going to say that's, I think, a really, really interesting innovation that you pointed out because it's time and again something that I hear even, you know, New Age NBFCs struggling with where they do give loans at a premium to a lot of incumbent institutions and they find that they've taken the struggle of spending the money and acquiring, originating the new customer and then they go through a few cycles and then get poached by a banking institution yeah. that can then provide them a lower interest rate. And so you're kind of foregoing that by delivering net value to your incumbent banking provider and not competing on, you know, end customer pricing. That's right. So I think that's been the design principle for us uh, as far as our economic model is concerned. And now, you know, for the past 18 months, we've consistently been unit positive on both our balance sheet business and our market business. That's awesome. No, that's, that's an incredible achievement. Thanks so much for sharing the way you think about it. Thinking kind of forward, especially because it's been an interesting last year or so for, you know, NBFCs, for credit, for lending in India. There have been some major downs after what was a few years of, you know, huge hype. So I, I'd love to hear from you what you think the major challenges in the lending space are going forward if you think of the next, you know, three to five years. And where you think the big opportunities are? Uh, so I think the, the big backdrop on this is fairly encouraging, right? So 85% uh, of the small businesses in India are still unserved by formal credit. Uh, there is a strong wave of digitization that is happening in the country, right. uh, led not just by private players, uh, but actually by public infrastructure like uh, Aadhaar, right. uh, UPI, GST, Right? and in general, more formalization of the economy. So, yeah. so I think the uh, enabling trends are all pointing in the right direction. Over the last nine right. months, and I think this will continue for at least next 12 months, there has been a shortage right. of capital supply and a tightening of credit criteria. So I think any business in the lending space has to adjust itself to that. I think one place where mm -hmm. we got lucky, and again, you know, some of these things we had not anticipated, is that our marketplace right. business actually provides us a little bit of robustness in that environment mm. because our MBFC is a young business. It is not top of the pyramid right. as far as its own debt fundraising capabilities are concerned. And we have lesser dependence on our captive book because of our marketplace business. Right. 
Our marketplace lenders right. really see uh, you know, NDC marketplace as a direct lending channel, and so you know when they are constrained for capital, they prioritize direct lending business over wholesale lending. Right. So the marketplaces really are hedge against yeah. on on the growth side from capital supply standpoint. Yeah. But it is true that if right. in a normal market environment, I would have considered going three to four x year on year. In a capital constrained environment, right. I will tone down that growth rate. Uh, we feel that that right, is a right. good trade-off to make. These are these are lending businesses. You always want to be careful about the lending cycle and the credit cycle. And so, you know, right. we are happy to be patient and take, you know, six, seven, eight years building the business. Uh, in our mind, there is no rush to build this in a three, four-year time frame. I think that's a that's a interesting point you made about you know there's no rush to build this because I think that that's a refreshing point of view because a lot of what we've seen with Many NBFCs. There was a phase prior to the last nine months when every day in the papers there was a new NBFC popping up, and a lot of what you did see in the market, I think you'd agree, was this rush to, you know, raise large amounts of capital and deploy it, and a lot of what was, you know, seemingly haphazard underwriting has seen us through this last nine months, where you know there's been this bad experience with people giving out credit and, and rising NPA rates, which has, you know, partly created this scare around uh, NBFCs and excessive lending and the need for more discipline. I wonder if you have any thoughts around that and, you know, how new companies, especially because you've been an uh, entrepreneur many times, and this is something new companies tackle, the need to be impatient at times and the need to be patient. So how would you give that guidance around how to balance when you should be patient and when you should be impatient? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, we actually work with uh, a lot of respect for both our peers and the incumbents. So I would, I would phrase what you said slightly differently. The, you know, there is a genuine difficulty in calibrating. And uh, I hope we don't get it wrong, but it is, you know, we are as susceptible to that as any of our peers or any of the incumbents. I think most people in the lending business do realize the discipline that it calls for. One of the things that we have done to be able to hopefully manage this better is to surround ourselves with people who have gone through cycles in the lending business, right? So most of our investors have been investing in the lending business for more than a decade. And so that they have seen crisis situations. Right. I myself was an investor in the microfinance space in 2010 when the crisis happened in that space. And right. so, you know, we kind of are relying a little bit on those playbooks that we have seen before uh, to guide right. ourselves. You know, similarly, right. you know, one of our, Maninder, uh, has been with ICICI Bank for more than a decade and has seen cycles that right. have happened in 2008, then 2010, a little bit of a cycle in 2013. So I think that is kind of what we are using to hopefully guide us better. But most lenders that we've seen in the market understand that lending is a hard business uh, and it is a cyclical right. business. It's just that sometimes those risks kind of blindsight uh, you. Yeah. Uh, and, and hence it's important to have enough uh, points of external reference, if I, may, if I may call them so, to be able to calibrate. Yeah, I think that's a fair, fair guidance, uh, especially to folks who are starting businesses for the first time on, you know, picking 
picking uh, advisors and picking people to support them through some of these unanticipated risks. I think that's a fair point. Great. I, I just want to switch gears. I know you've had an extensive background in investing, and we've talked a little bit about your personal experiences there, but I know, you know, congratulations. I know you successfully at Indefee closed recently a Series C of, you know, over $20 million that was led by CDC Group. So huge congratulations on that. Thank you. I, um, I just so wanted then, to pick think, your brain uh, on. You know, yeah. Go Sorry, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was just saying that uh, no, having an investor of that quality is, is uh, very reassuring. Uh, and again, CDC, I think, has been investing in the Indian financial services market for more than 20 years now. Uh, so really excited to have them on board, yes. So that's incredible. Uh, I would just like to pick your brain first on just understanding what is the landscape? Who are the investors today in this fintech space in India? Uh, if you could just paint us a picture of who some of these major investors are, whether they're VCs, whether they're angels, whether they're you know big firms here that are doing the investment here or abroad. Um, and then, you know, would love to, for you to put your investor hat on and give just some guidance to people who are, have these fintech companies and are looking to seek investment. What are some things they should keep in mind to make their enterprise more investable and attractive? Fintech is a lot of different spaces. You know, in India, I would broadly classify it into four different sub-segments. Right. The first one right. has been payments, and there has been a lot of investment in the payments business in India. On that right. continuum of how, how tech-heavy a business is, payments obviously is very, very tech in the world. Yeah. So the second uh, piece is uh, insurance, uh, where again there are mm-hmm. uh, you know, a couple of market leaders available in the Indian market. Insurance and then lending are a little bit of a mix of fintech and financial services. Right, in the sense right. that both of them present these capital and underwriting challenges. So in some sense, yeah. they are not pure fintech. You know, at some level, they look more like financial services businesses. And then, of course, there is a wealth management right. business, which is the asset side of the business. Uh, in fact, that's probably the category that is attracting the most early stage interest today. Yeah. So, you know, in, in businesses like insurance and lending, there have been the classic technology venture capital investors. Uh, both domestic mm-hmm. and global investors who wanted to invest in that. But there right. has also been uh, the classic financial services investors, people who don't qualify themselves as technology venture capital investors, but people who have invested in right. banks before, people who have invested in non-banking financial services, people who have invested in classical insurance companies. So those have been the other pool right. of capital available for you know insurance and lending fintech companies. Over the last I think I've seen a little bit of a shift from the tech venture side onto the more classic financial services investors. And perhaps because mm-hmm. the technology VCs have realized that this is not a pure fintech play, you know, this has elements mm-hmm. of asset management, elements of risk management that they may right. or may not you know, necessarily understand. Uh, right. and the financial services side of the house has become more valuable because of their ability to right. deal with these risk factors. So I think that's the, broadly the complexion of the investor set that we are seeing today. I think from a guidance for investors, you know, really, I think uh, being able to appreciate the fundamental character of the business, whether that is risk-oriented or maybe it is not, what is the real play that technology can deliver? Right? Technology for technology's sake typically hasn't worked in any part of the world, not just in India. 
Right. And has really been being right. able to say, you know, if we are fintech, then why are we fintech? And what is it that tech is adding to the fin part of it? I think those are important right. questions to answer as an investment firm and obviously as an operating business. So I think those are some of the important elements in my mind uh, as I look at people who are investing in the financial technology industry. I think, I think that makes sense. What about the flip side of that? What's the guidance for people who, people who are looking to start their own enterprises and, and raise funding? When should they think about raising funding? What are things they should consider about their business when they're preparing to raise funding? Yeah. Well, I think that depends a lot on uh, you know, what stage are they at. And what kind of capital does that business demand? Right? I think in the lending business, it is becoming more and more clear that you need to have some skin in the game to be able to operate this business. And hence, it does tend to be a little bit more capital intensive uh, in the beginning than one would like. Right. Right? That may not be true right. you know, for a purely agency or a tech platform business where the investments mm-hmm. may look more uh, classically, you know, the seed round and then the series A round and so on. Uh, right. I think with that comes the question of investor choice. You know, in the lending right. subspace, you know, my, my strong belief is that your investors have to be calibrated to your growth strategy. Because it's very hard for an entrepreneur to walk up and say, I'm, I'm okay to be patient if the investors are not. Mm-hmm. Right. So having Absolutely. that board level alignment on how you balance growth with risk management is certainly a very important element in the in the lending fintech space. You know, finally, and you know, this podcast has been a little bit of a departure for me. You know, we don't actually use the word fintech in our business in the company, right? And my mm-hmm. strong advice will be for entrepreneurs to discard that term because as soon as mm-hmm. as entrepreneurs we start to use that term, we start to believe that there is something special about us because we are fintech. Right? Right. The reality is there is nothing special about us just by virtue of being a fintech. We have to find that okay. customer value and differentiation in our operating model. And so actually right. in, in Indifi, we don't, we don't use the term fintech internally at all. Uh, <laughs> Got so it. I, would, I would request entrepreneurs to, to give up these buzzwords and go to the first principles of, you know, why should they be in business? What value are they bringing to the customer? Uh, how are they going to differentiate themselves and create value? Right. I think you bring up a very interesting point around buzzwords, and it's something that a bunch of us have thought a lot about around. It's a little bit of a dilemma for folks that are starting businesses because you're absolutely right in that buzzwords can become a crutch where not going to the root cause and to the first principles becomes an option because you just put yourself under a buzzword, as you said, you know, using fintech and sometimes, you know, buzzwords like blockchain or AI or ML are often used as well. Um, but at the same time, when, when folks are looking to raise um, capital, do you think that, you know, sometimes being able to fit a certain buzzword actually has some value when you're trying to define your business to raise capital? Or do you actually think the real investor, when it comes to actually putting down money, um, there's no point of trying to fit a certain buzzword because investors actually will look well past that. Uh, so I think uh, investors will look past that. However, I think there is merit to using you know classification buzzwords when you get there, right? Because every investment firm will have a certain organization. There'll be certain people looking at certain categories of businesses. So I think you know a strong entrepreneur also has to be a strong fundraiser and a marketer. Uh, so if mm-hmm. it is an expression of marketing and positioning, then that's fine. 
But once the entrepreneur starts to right. internalize those buzzwords, I think that is where the problem comes. Yeah. Most absolutely, investors also absolutely. want to look at. You know, most investors also want to look for the entrepreneur's ability to raise future rounds of capital. So they are interested in yeah. understanding whether this entrepreneur can really market themselves. So I do see, yeah. I do see the rationale of having the right marketing pitch. You know, and that sometimes involves buzzwords. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's important to uh, delineate the content of the business from the marketing of the business. Absolutely, I think that's an interesting distinction, right? Of being able to keep the, you know, who you are on the outside while marketing your business versus, you know, what you believe on the inside while running your business. I, I, that's that's very helpful guidance, I think, for anyone who's trying to start up an enterprise and then go and raise some funding for it. So thanks so much. This has been a highly informative chat. Before we start wrapping things up, I just wanted to give the platform to you. We've chatted about a lot of topics, learned a lot about Indifi and your journey so far, and understood a lot about the lending space and the challenges it poses there. If you Do you have any parting thoughts on, you know, what are you most excited about? Uh, where are the huge opportunities? Uh, what gets you excited in, this, in the next, you know, three to five years? Yeah, you know, I think the, the core element which keeps me uh, excited and get, you know, gets me to come to work every day is really that, you know, we have found a space which uh, marries what commercial success we can achieve. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it has a very strong impact and a national element to it. You know, small right. businesses are recognized as the, you know, lever for both growth and job creation in India. And to yeah. be able to identify that space and simultaneously stand for great commercial potential but great impact potential, I think that is something that yeah. has been enormously exciting for me, my co-founder, and the team here. No, I think that's that's absolutely true. Small businesses are definitely the heartbeat, especially for India. You know, driving about forty percent of its economy. So rightly said by you that you're achieving commercial success while still having a huge impact on, on the economy. So that's, we're super proud to have you on our podcast. And thank you so much for taking so much time to chat with us and share all your experiences. It was a true pleasure. Absolutely, Shampa. Thanks so much for the opportunity.